Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Sign. How's it going, Hugh? It's going well. Thank you, Andrew. Today we're joined by Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member Chris Hillman. He's arguably the primary architect of what's come to be known as country rock. After playing the Southern California folk and bluegrass circuit, he joined David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and Michael Clark as an original member of The Birds. He went on to partner with Graham Parsons to launch the Flying Burrito Brothers, recording a handful of albums that have become touchstones of rock-influenced country. He embarked on a prolific recording career in various configurations as a member of Stephen Stills' Manassas, Souther Hillman Fury Band with J.D. Souther and Richie Fury of Buffalo Springfield, as a solo artist and in a trio with his fellow former Birds members, Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark. In the 1980s, he launched a successful mainstream country career when he formed the Desert Rose Band herb peterson and john jorgensen scoring eight top 10 country hits in the midst of his country success he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame he's since released a number of solo albums with the most recent one biden my time produced by the legendary tom petty in time between hillman takes readers behind the curtain of his southern california musical journey which is his uh, book about his life and his career so please welcome to the music buzz podcast chris hillman so, Chris, first of all, you're one of my all-time heroes, man. I'm an official bird nerd. That's N-Y-R-D. <laughs> I've got the books to prove it. Uh, I love it. I got the day-to-day book, which is really, That's a good, uh, it's really actually, cool. Yeah, uh, Dane, I, I was, was consulting that book. I couldn't remember certain things. Yeah, It's amazing that every concert, every recording session, all that stuff. Yeah. I've also got 
believe it or not, both of the Requiem for the Timeless Johnny Rogan books. Oh, Johnny Rogan. <laughs> Uh-oh, sorry. <laughs> but very informative. I mean, I think he loves you guys, that's for sure. Um, it's yeah. interesting breed. Well, the, I remember the first book came out, and then somehow it got, got to be one book. I don't know. And then there was another book, then one book. Yeah. yeah. A lot of information, and, you know, anyway. And yeah. then my, my favorite of the books is this one, which I pre pre-ordered, and man, just fantastic. Thank you very much. Wonderful read. I recommend this to all listeners. Time Between, My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. Chris Hillman, everybody should check this book out. Thank you, Dane. I appreciate that a lot. I've got a couple minutes here. I'm just going to ramble. I got yeah, some please. stuff I got to say. So mm -hmm. I first saw you October 19th, 1972 in Bloomington, Indiana at the Assembly Hall with Manassas. And Fuzzy Samuels was sick that night. You might remember that. You played bass the whole show. Oh my gosh. I hope I did okay. I mean, you I mean, were fantastic. You guys put on the most eclectic concert I've ever witnessed. I, I, I Dane, I love that band. I, I'm in contact with Fuzzy all the time and Paul Harris and Al Perkins. Uh, Steven has it, lost so much of his hearing. You, the only way to, co to communicate with Steven is, is text him. So there you go. But anyway, we're all. I hate to hear that. Yeah, but I mean, uh, we all love that band. Oh man, you guys, I mean, it's still the best concert I've ever seen. You guys played the whole side of that first double album. I was 11 years old. It was unbelievable. You played Thanks. it straight through, man. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. The next time I got to see you was with my youngest daughter, Abigail, who's maybe even a bigger fan than I am. Um, and it was October the 4th, 2017, in uh, near Cincinnati in Kentucky. But it was two days after Tom Petty had passed away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And yeah. you came out and said you were going to cancel that show and the remainder of the tour. But Roger McGuinn and David Crosby encouraged you to continue because Tom would have wanted you to. Yeah. Mostly and, Roger really got on me about it. Not in a bad way. Danny just said, hey, Tom would not have liked it if you if you canceled shows. Go out and celebrate him. And it was great. It was the perfect thing to, to tell me at the time. I was I was heartbroken. Oh, I know. I know you were. And you could tell because, I mean, you guys were crying. Everybody, when you guys did the Bells of Remedy, that first song, there was not a dry eye in that house. Oh, it yeah. was it was quite, it was a moment. Again, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And I want to tell the listeners, if you get a chance to go see Chris with Herb Peterson or with Herb and John Jorgensen, buy a ticket. You won't be disappointed. Thank you, buddy. And lastly, I got to see the Sweetheart of the Rodeo Tour right towards the end in Bristol, Tennessee on December the 1st in 2018. Me and my high school buddies... Had a little uh, weekend, and it was an eight-hour drive for us, but it was fantastic. You guys were great. The stories you told in between songs were fantastic. And, of course, the band was killer. I know Kenny Vaughn pretty well. From, from I love those guys, and they're such good players. I mean, could possibly be one of the better quartets out there, you know. No question. And everybody switching around instruments and stuff. It was fabulous. But, you know, in particular, your voice was astounding. You're getting them out of the park with me today, Dane. <laughs> this is no BS, man. This is all, you seem to be seeing better with age. So you're going to have to let us in on your secret. Chris Scruggs said that to me. And uh, Chris said, you know, you sing better now. I said, yeah, it took me a while to get, really get hold of that. And he said, you're singing so much better. And then Connie's, uh, excuse me, Marty's wife, Connie Smith, really uh, gave me a great compliment. She says, you're a good country singer. And man, cuts coming from, you know. She's something. But anyway, that was 
such a lot you know we all as you can tell you saw the show we were having a great time Every and i could tell you guys were the audience was so into it marty's up there playing clarence's old instrument the two two telecaster deal yeah. it was just fabulous yeah so quickly i'd like to move on to what i'm just going to say are not the essential but 15 essential chris hillman songs that everybody should hear so this is for all you listeners uh, i'm just going to ramble off a few that came to the, my mind first running by the desert rose band that's my personal favorite song of yours that's really a great well-written piece Thank you so much. sin city wheels and devil in disguise from the gilded palace of sin by the flying burrito brothers one of the greatest records ever <laughs> i mean come on now it doesn't matter and both of us bound to lose from the manassas record another historic classic record rise and fall from souther hillman furry's first record Another underlooked record. Your songs are great on that record. Natural Harmony and Old John Robinson from the Notorious Bird Brothers record, mm -hmm. a brilliant LP. This is one you may not agree, but Things Will Be Better from that reunion record, an album I sh think should be remixed and reevaluated. That, that's the song that rocks. It sounds more like the birds than anything else on there. I, it's so funny. Um, I could talk to you for 20 minutes on the, uh, us doing that record. And we, of, of all the times we needed someone running driving the stagecoach we needed that something. was it oh god david brought in this guy to engineer it and oh my gosh he was you can't little, even hear mcguinn at all yeah, oh, no, it was a it was a nightmare and it's like we weren't we were so afraid i think i wrote that in the book we we're afraid of stepping on each other's toes you know i'm coming yeah. out of, uh, but anyway yeah and gene i was gonna say gene rose to the occasion his he songs really were stepped up to the plate he sure did. did. The sky was what Neil Young song. I mean, he was fantastic. That's the circle song. I love Full that. circle. Yeah. And changing heart. The yeah. other song of his on there. Great stuff to go on with my list. How about the five songs on the, you wrote half the record younger than yesterday. <laughs> Time between girl with no name thoughts and words. Have you seen her face? So you want to be a rock and roll star. Many people consider that the greatest birds record. Way to go, man. I love that record. I love that track. Thank you very much. I mean, I love playing that track. And a lot of that is, is, is Masakela's influence, Hugh Masakela's influence on the on rock and roll star, and especially on uh, Have You Seen Her Face? I actually used his keyboard player, Cecil Bernard, who was from South Africa. He played keyboard on Have You Seen Her Face? and barely hear him, but thank you so much. You're very complimentary. And finally, last but not least, Biden My Time beautiful song from your latest record which if you guys listeners haven't heard it go check it out now it's a mostly acoustic but it's just a heartfelt americana tour de force to me wonderful wonderful record man yeah i i would i was always worried that whether tom uh liked it or not you know i mean he, i was in awe of tom i mean i would look at tom like an equal but not an equal he was he was the most humble guy in the world. And, and I always said this, I said, for this guy who occupied such a, a position in music, I would look at him in awe, but you know, and, and uh, I actually asked the engineer, Ryan, oh gosh, after the album was done, I said, did Tom like this? Record? He says, no, he loves your record. He just wanted more drums. <laughs> and I understand now because Tom really wanted, when I originally showed him a few things, he said, oh, we're doing a folk album. Cool. He was fine to do anything, but uh, I would have, plugged in and had the whole setup out there with with uh steve ferroni and all those guys in a minute we used the heartbreakers on a couple yeah those guys are on there well and i thought that i read somewhere where he said he wasn't done with you yet yeah he wanted to do a rock record with oh, you man. that would have been fantastic man. i was just i wasn't over the moon when he said that you know but yeah he was a yeah. sweet guy a really great guy and 
Now, I, I saw the Burrito Brothers, I think, in 71 or 72. And the only way I could have you tell me that I, if you were on stage or not was they were sharing the stage with a, a very eclectic folk psychedelic band called Family from England. Were you with the band then? I think I was there in 71. I'm trying to figure out if uh, 72, if I went over to with Manassas or not at that I point. I think you did. Yeah, you were. Did you ever share the, the stage with Family from England? It sounds familiar. Yeah, well, I got to see the, the dynamic Graham Parsons once and the whole band. It was fabulous. It was a remarkable evening. But I am very curious. It, it's, it's you. You're on record for having introduced Graham to Emmy Lou. Is that right? Yeah. And how did that come about? Parsons had come back from England. He had been at Keith Richards' house probably almost a year. I think Keith or his wife was, uh, I can't remember her name. Anita. Anita. Anita, thank you. Uh, uh, but I think she'd had enough. And <laughs> They said, go home, Graham. And he came, I ran into him on the, uh, I think Maryland or someplace. We had done a gig. He, came, he knew we were playing. He comes over and he sat in with us and sang. And he says, I want to go make an album in LA. Uh, I need to find a girl singer. I said, I know just the one. Well, I had met Emmy down in uh, Georgetown, Washington, DC. And she sat in with the burritos. We were playing at the cellar door. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I just, it took me an hour to get him to call her. Um, we were in my hotel room. I said, call her up. Finally, he calls her and uh, <laughs> he says, can you pick me up at the air, at the train station in D.C.? She says, no, I don't know you. I've never met you. I'm not going to pick you up. <laughs> he said, if you come down here, uh, here's where I'm working for the next few nights. Come over and we'll talk. And he did. And, and she went out to L.A. with him. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't do anything, but it worked. I mean, as best as it could. I mean, I mean, Emmy had to put up with what I had to put up with, and and uh, it was tough sometimes. Sometimes with Graham, that's all. It was hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a shame. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, Chris, can we go back to your earliest musical adventures? Back to your bluegrass days and mm -hmm. your mandolin apprenticeship. The Scottsville I I can never say that the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. That's a tongue twister. It is. And the circumstances leading up to joining the Birds as the bass player, even though you'd never played a bass before. Well, I mean, I, I was playing uh, the Squirrel Barkers was the first band I was in. And then I got hired into the Golden State Boys. Well, in the Golden State Boys was Vernon Gosden and his brother. The Gostens. God, they were good. I mean, and, and Don Parmley, banjo player. So they were about 10, 12 years older than I was. And I get I got the job. I don't know how I was not a good player at all. But Don hired me. He was the leader of the band. And, and uh, we played together for about six, seven months. And then they had kids and families. So they, <laughs> bluegrass, uh, you couldn't make a living back in 1963. And I got another job uh, with... Uh, this horrible group called the Greengrass Group, which was real close to a Beverly Hillbillies portrayal of, of somebody from Kentucky. You know what I'm saying? The Beverly yeah, Hillbillies yeah. TV show. So this band was just not good, but it was hundred bucks a week and a place to stay. And we played every night at this club in Westwood, California. But then along come the Beatles in February of 1964. And of course we all saw that. I got a phone call from uh, Jim Dixon, who I'd been working with on the Golden State Boys. And he said, do you know David Crosby? Let's, let's call him Roger right now. Roger McGuinn and Gene Clark. I said, I know who they are. I don't know who they know them. He said, you should come down and listen to them. They're rehearsing every night at World Pacific Studios. Can you come down late one night? I said, yeah, I'll come out after my gig. I came down at one o'clock in the morning and heard him sing with one guitar. 
maybe two acoustic guitars. And they were good. They were really good singers. And Gene had written some songs. They were very good. It was very Beatlesque. And I had high standards. I had been working with the Gosling brothers and they were like unbelievably good singers. Three weeks later, I get a phone call from Jim Dixon again. He said, um, David Crosby was going to be the bass player. He doesn't want to do it. He's not comfortable. Can you play the bass? It took me two seconds to uh, answer uh, this, Hugh. I said, yeah, I can handle it. I hadn't even held an electric bass. You know, I'd messed around on a standard bass. I said, yeah, I think I can handle that. And uh, I went down uh, a couple days later, and I thought that I was going to walk into this studio at two in the morning, and they were set up with drums, uh, amps, everything. Full full rock band. And I walk in and McGuinn's plugged into an old Epiphone amp, floor amp on the, uh, uh, he's the only one plugged in. I plug in with him on the bass. <laughs> Mike Clark has, the drummer has a couple cardboard boxes, a cymbal and a snare. And that's it. Crosby or Gene had a, a, an acoustic guitar or something, not real interesting. And I walked in there and I said, my God, what is this a skiffle band? You know, do you remember Lenny Donegan? Sure. Oh, yeah. Washboards and. Yeah. And, yeah. and Lennon, John Lennon was a, in a skiffle guy yep. before the Beatles. I couldn't, I said, is this like a skiffle, man? I didn't say a word. I'm, you know, I'm going, okay. So I plug in, we start playing, and and I'm, I'm, you know, futzing around on the bass trying to figure it out. But it, we got a sound going, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were all came out of folk music. But like I say, it was a, an interesting eye opener. I, I realized they didn't. None of us knew what we were doing. We plugged in and we went from there. Sure. And you guys had the opportunity to hear yourselves back. Yeah, exactly. We got uh, taped every night on two track. And, and, but uh, it was a, a great eye opener because you're going, well, we don't have a blueprint. We're not a garage rock band. Uh, we would do cover songs. We'd do anything from a Beatles song to a Stones song when we didn't have enough material. But it just de developed in quite a good way. I uh, actually, <laughs> I think I asked Roger McGuinn a couple months ago, I said, hey, uh, how many guys did you call for the Birds bass job? About 27? He said, no, I didn't even call you. It was Dick, Jim Dixon called, and you were the first guy, and it worked. I said, okay. Wow. So, he says, why are you asking me this now, 55 years later? <laughs> I, said, I don't know. He says, have you been losing sleep all these years? I said, no, I was just all of a sudden curious, you know. That's funny, man. <laughs> I got a great gig out of it. I loved being in the birds, and eventually I learned how to get, get around on the bass okay. so Yeah, you think, man, so, some of the most, I'm just going to throw this in here. Any budding bass players out there, they need to listen to Eight Miles High, Renaissance Fair, Everybody's Been Burned, uh, some of the coolest bass lines that are unlike any other bass lines before that time, as far as I'm concerned. When you started taking uh, bass and focusing on bass, who were you listening to? I was listening to McCartney, and because he, I said, okay, well, he's using a pick. He's sort yeah. of counter melody to what's going on in the melody of the song, and I mm -hmm. loved what he was doing. And then I think McCartney had the comment a while back, which is, well, you know, the bass player was always the fat guy that wasn't very good looking and was in the back line. I sold it. <laughs> I don't know if I was good looking or battling, but I was, I was in the back line for a while because I was very shy, but uh, that was a silly line because he was such a great bass player. Yeah, he was. Later, I would listen to uh, Jack Bruce. Well, of course, yeah. I'm getting pretty familiar with the bass fight. But Jack Bruce was similar. Mm -hmm. you know, counter melody. Um, Very melodic, yeah. I loved Ent Whistle. I thought Ent Whistle was probably the best rock and roll oh, yeah. ever. Oh, yeah. One, one of, of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you mentioned the Beatles um, and, and dialing back a little bit. Can you tell us about that first trip to England, which if I, I think might've been when Hugh was, when you were living in England, uh, first trip to England with the birds and being called America's answer to the Beatles only a few months after your first single. Can you tell us about that? I was going to say it was the birds, mamas and papas, um, loving spoonful. It's, it was, and the beach boys, it were those bands that made me feel less homesick for North America when I lived in England. Mm. So it, yeah, it's fabulous to hear you guys. Mm. Yeah, well, we went over in the summer of 65, and in hindsight, of course, we shouldn't have gone that soon, but uh, it, it was okay. Uh, here we are going back to England with Derek Taylor, who had worked for Brian Epstein and had been the Beatles publicist, and he yep. had yep. Brian and come to the States, and his first client was the Beach Boys, and then he took us on. And I always thought De Derek was triumphantly marching back to the gates of Rome with the birds and saying, look what I did in America. Well, you know, after like, leaving you to Brian Epstein, but uh, we had a good time I and mean, it was tough. Uh, and we hung out with the Beatles. They were very, very kind, nice guys. And uh, I was so shy. I mean, my God, I write, write that thing. <laughs> we're all out that night after a gig and Lennon gets me. You didn't want to get in, in Lennon's eyesight. He was such a sarcastic guy, you know. Does this one talk? I loved it. And so, I mean, I had to laugh later, but I was beat red when he said it, you know, and everybody's yeah. looking at it. Oh, God, John Lennon. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was enjoyable. I mean, but we had such a, it was such a uh, crazy tour. We, uh, we had this promoter, uh, Mervyn Kahn, who was just a, not a good guy. And, and he actually booked us into uh, two different clubs on the same night. Um, what's the jazz? Uh, oh gosh. Oh no. Ronnie Scott's Ronnie Scott. It's not Ronnie Scott's, but close. It was one of those, but in that area of town, what's that area of town called in London? There's a lot of jazz clubs. And I can't remember. But anyway, it was, it was fun. It was good. And, uh, you played for the members of the Beatles. They were, some of them were in the audience. Correct. Not that tour. The next tour we, we were over there and, uh, and we knew McCartney was coming to see us play. And well, how'd that feel? I was fine. Crosby had a once in a while would get very nervous. Uh -huh. And then if David got scared, he'd lash out at, at anybody around him. So I was the victim that night. However, that was the night. It was like the schoolyard bully scene. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Terry, he <laughs> says, Don't screw it up tonight. We got McCartney. I said, let me tell you something. If you ever talk to me like that again, you'll never sing in key in tune again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know he was never after that it was never it was never he was never been do, do you value your your larynx <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah, you, you value, yeah, value exactly. your larynx but david and i are good friends i mean i love the guy we get along fine and that was just that one incident in 1965 or 66 you know yeah get that way get nervous well and then when you went back to england w w when graham was in the band mm -hmm. you played at a club and the stones came out Correct. And then you went to the Stonehenge story in your book is kind of funny. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Mick invited us to go to Stonehenge, which meant he, uh, picking us up at one in the morning so we could get out there in time to see the sunrise mm -hmm. around the monument. And which just sounds great, you know, everything. So I, I, we went and uh, Graham was with us and uh, Graham was just enamored with the whole thing at that point. And so uh, we'll never, I'll never forget McGuinn and I walking and, it was very damp, very wet out. It's England. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Graham's trying to catch up to Mick and Keith. And I think Mick was seeing Mary Unfaithful then. And she was mm. with us. And, Graham, and I'm looking at 
Roger, I said, uh-oh. You know, I mean, he was so running after them like a little kid. Uh, of course, it didn't work out too well because <clears throat> we had a tour of South Africa and Graham bails on us on the morning we were supposed to go to the airport. And I should have really known then in hindsight, I should have said, hey, you know, this isn't working. But I forgave him. I forgave him 70 times seven, as it says in the Bible. I forgave him a lot. I love the guy, but it, it got to where I couldn't work with him. Yeah. So, Understandable. Yeah, say the first uh, burrito album, that was a, about the best we got out of him. And then it was, he, ch he changed the focus from wanting to be a musician to how can I feel great today? Uh, sort of mm. like pursuit if you follow yeah 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 well the material on that burrito brothers the first album that you guys came up with when you were you guys were living together at that point mm -hmm. after, right after you'd left the birds so that's some of the greatest songs man thank you Dan. you know I, I i have to tell you i i do feel we were so lazy in in the execution we didn't even have a drummer right yeah different drummer on every song and uh but i, I always said okay i come here i come off of playing eight miles high or, or rock and roll star and then the burrito brothers and it was we, uh, the songs were were pretty good i i gotta say it i'm not yes. patting myself on the back but we had the material but it was just the execution was a bit loose very mm -hmm. loose and i used to tell richie fury i said you know poco you guys had the tightest band going for that for early country rock you were really tight yeah they were yeah they were they didn't have those songs, though. They didn't have the songs. They didn't have the songs. Ed Dillard and Clark's first record was great, too. Oh, man, you got it, Dane. They, uh, they were fantastic. Dillard and Clark. Yeah, that really acoustic that everybody was around, like, a, in a circle making that record. Yeah, it was great. Fabulous, yeah. fabulous time. Then you have bands that, are, that excel in sounding loose, even though they're extraordinarily tight, like the band. Yeah. And even even Tom Waits when he records, he, he's quite sly. He makes everything sound like he just did it in his living room, you know. And right. Yeah, I remember I, I went to see the band with JD Souther, and he said, oh, "They're these aren't they're aren't really tight." I said, "That's the, the that's the brilliance of it." Yeah, yeah. What they're doing is is it, it, that free abandonment of their of their execution of the songs is what yeah worked. yeah mm -hmm. worked for yeah. them for sure. I'd like to to talk a little bit more about the book. Um, yeah. you know, obviously, Dane, you talked about that uh, and showed it at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about what you learned, you know, about yourself in the process and what really brought you to writing the book in general. It's such a big undertaking uh, to write a book. And where did you find the time? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I had time. Of, um, I, I don't I don't need even when things are normal as far as live music. I mean, I would go out maybe once a month and I'd, I'd always stop around November till March. I just started writing it. I don't know exactly why, except other than I wanted to leave something for the kids, my kids, and then hopefully grandkids, which I do have now. I have two grandkids. So that was done. And, and um, there were issues I wanted to clarify, you know, that certain books had been written that weren't exactly accurate. There was this manuscript all done and I had it sitting there for a year or two. And I said to my wife, I think we should find an agent uh, and see if we can publish this. And that's where I met Scott Bomar from BMG. And he heard, had heard I was writing a book and asked if he could read some of it. And I said, absolutely. I sent him a couple of chapters and he got right back and he said, let's talk. Let's, we want to publish this book. But the best thing he said to me, Hugh, was we don't need a co-writer. And I was over, I just felt like, wow. Now, it felt so good. Well, that was my next question. Uh, you know, I mean, every author, including first-time book authors who just somehow excel at what they do, had you ever considered yourself you know, someone who kept a diary or kept 
well-formed thoughts about your history? I wished I had them, but I didn't. I did keep a journal when I went to the Middle East. Hmm. That was like a few years ago. Um, no, I never did that. I did write, um, I wrote liner notes on a couple records. Uh, I did, I wrote an article for the local newspaper years ago, but I mean, I never was really a serious writer, but it just. When you started writing something, you know, as important as this, because you're thinking about your legacy to your children and so on, there's some pressure there. There's some, you know, there's, there's some expectations you must have had of yourself. How did you find the process of writing? Did it come naturally? Did, you, did it flow? Or did you have to herniate every day to get the words on the page? It flowed very well. Nice. Yeah. I mean, and you're in the process of writing. And of course, I would come up with the worst cliches. And my daughter, who was an English lit teacher, oh. took a look at it and edited the book on a, from a level, a grammar level. Yeah. Merciless. That's convenient. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was like an angel from heaven when I met my future wife, Connie, and she said, really? An angel from heaven, Dad? Really? Click. Well, red line goes through that. She said, ah. I said, okay. She said, well, she said, let's think of something more interesting. You had a metaphor police on hand. Yeah. So after uh, after we had make a deal with BMG, of course, I really rewrote the book and it got rid of a lot of excess. And Connie, my wife, was fantastic. Mm -hmm. She'd come in and say, you know, if you're going to talk about this Burrito Brothers session, why don't you enhance it with, with the song you did and how, how many takes you did or who was playing on it? And I said, you're right. That's the stuff people want to know. That's the stuff we want to know. By the way, I did listen to your um, recent album uh, this morning. And what a lovely offering that is. I mean, and true to what we were saying earlier, your voice is amazing. I love how intimate the album is. Yeah. Betty was a great producer. And his engineer, Ryan, who played, was a wonderful engineer and did a lot of Tom's work. But uh, I it was a, had a joyful time. David joined you on there. Roger joined you. Yeah. I wish we could have Roger in the studio, but he was in Florida, but he, he sent in his. Well, I had a beautiful moment when Bells of Rimney came on, too. That was a, a beautiful piece. If you'd have seen it live, man. No, I know. I could <laughs> hear it. Yeah. That was my favorite uh, bird cut. It, on the first album, I said, if anybody wants to know what the birds were, or what they what they're about, it's listen to Bells of Rimney. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. It, it was orchestral in the way we cut Definitely. it. Definitely beautiful. And your version of Gene's song on your record too. Uh, she don't care about time. Uh -huh. The re redo of that's fantastic on there too. Well, what an amazing song he wrote at 19 years old. Right. I mean, here was a guy, and I actually said to Crosby, I said, you ever see Gene with a book in his hand when we were out on the road? He said, no. Did you? I said, never saw him read a book. And I, he'd come out with the most beautiful poetry. Beautiful stuff. <laughs> Great songwriter. last uh, st thing I did with Gene was McGuinn Clark and Hillman in the late 70s, and he had written this one song, uh, and it was a line. He says, you are, the, you are the wind that fills the sails of jealousy. I went, what? And we got, and we we're always in the birds in the old days. We we're going, man, and we're all rambling to try and get near Gene as far as his, his yes. prolific and, and so lyrical. Yeah. How do you find writing lyrics yourself? I, I always hard. <laughs> Dane and I have talked about this before. You <laughs> Easy know. answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> Dane and I talk about all the people we admire, like Joni Mitchell and, and Don Henley and Jack, Jackson Brown, and, you know, so. I personally, I, you know, I love to write and arrange, but I, when it comes to words, I understand why Elton has Bernie. Mm. I'm curious to know, you say it's hard, but how do you get through it? Sometimes I, I, I've been working with this fella, uh, Steve Hill, for over 25 years. And I, 
be close friends with. Sometimes I come up with a line. Sometimes he does. Sometimes I come up with a hook or a melody or a melodic riff right. on the guitar or something. He does. We go from there. And, and we're so close as friends that uh, I'll come up with a line and he'll go like this. He'll go. Uh-uh. <laughs> that's got to go. I said, that bad? He said, well, if if that's going into the song, then I want more of a cut on the, on the royalty streamers. We're very, it's very like your pissed. daughter's red pen. That's almost a good title for the next uh, project. The red, the red pen. pen. There you go, man. <laughs> so, Chris, you were talking yeah. about McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman a minute ago, which I remember I've got all those records when they first came out, and that was quite a different sound. Uh, it was very unbird-ish. That first record, yeah. but man, it's had some great songs on it. Gene, in particular, had uh, yeah, uh, backstage pass was really cool. Love that long, long time was your song that was really great on there. Um, but can you tell us about how that reunion album kind of petered out and didn't come out the way you guys thought it might? Gene and Roger had got the toward the late seventies were working as a duo and sort of getting them, their lives back together. And then uh, they had some kind of an uh, offer on the table from Capitol. And then I got involved somehow, which made it a, a better. You got three guys, three guys from the birds. We never wanted to call it the birds because David and Michael were not involved in it, but I liked the band. I got to tell you, Dane, I mean, it, uh, on stage, it was great. And I, I, uh, I was one of the best drummers I worked with. I got, I worked with Jim Gordon for a while in Southern Hillman Fure, but this guy, Greg Thomas, I think he uh, he's no longer with us. He had Parkinson's or something, but he was a wonderful drummer to play bass to. When I, you know, and you're a, a drummer and you're good. You've been playing with Mellencamp for a long time. Obviously, you're a very good drummer. But a good drummer will make me, not the greatest bass player, play really good bass. If I got a guy that's solid as a rock, Mike Clark and I would race each other at the end of the song sometimes, and he'd win. <laughs> the funniest thing is when... He, uh, Major Lance comes to Ciro's where, where we had been working and he had a one night gig at Ciro's Major, Major Lance and he had his drummer wasn't there. So they hired Mike and Mike's the only white guy up there. He's hitting him, but he was good. You know, Dan, he was hitting. He had that back. He was down. a rhythm and blues guy, wasn't he? He was a rhythm and blues guy. So at the end of the night, he goes back and, and Major Lance is in his dressing room. Go off and he says, hey, drummer, thank you, man. And Mike goes, Six bucks. Wow. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, really said it, delivered that line. Six bucks. Hmm. Thanks a lot. Walked out. Great. It was like, here, gives it to me. <laughs> oh, man. Funny as I'll get up. Yeah, he did. He had a real R&B feel. Uh, feel. That's good. A lot of backbeats. So. That's awesome. I've got one little question for you. I read somewhere where on Fridays that uh, you and Roger and your wife's did a trivial pursuit thing are you guys still able to do that oh, yeah yeah we usually do it at, uh he's in florida we and they start at uh 4 30 and it's 1 30 out in the west coast and it's funny that's awesome yeah, man it's funny because they don't have they're all having a cocktail they get an answer right they're pouring a martini i said i'm not having one at 1 30 <laughs> yeah it's a little early here it's it's fun to see him in, in that uh yeah, yeah. We're, we're still great friends. And of course, uh, get, working with him again with Marty in the superlatives, I hadn't worked with Roger for 20, 30 years and, and I, like no time had passed. He has an amazing, amazing sense of time. He's very easy to work with. And as you saw, uh, Dan, you saw us where we'd come out at the beginning of the show. Oh, see? yeah. And he's playing 
my back pages. And yep. Out, and then I come out on the base. I love that. It was a great man. Movie. It it was the crowd went. Everybody stood up. The crowd went. Cooking. I'll tell you what I love best. I was Marty. Marty's man on playing. Okay. Oh, he's fantastic. Marty's got it, and he's. Marty is like, uh, doesn't play 9 million notes like a lot of young guys do. He gets it. And I said, man, you really are. He says, oh, I just, you know, he says, you know, I just. Marty's incredible. That band is ridiculous, too. I've done a bunch of shows with them. Jeez. He's had them, what, together? They've all been together, what, yeah. 40 years? Like Tom. Tom's guys were with him for 40 years. It makes a big difference. It's Well, it says a lot about the band yeah. leader. Yeah. Yeah. Right? True. You've been with Mellon. 25 years. That's a long, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That makes that that's all the difference in the world. You sure know? is. To treat people with respect and love and and patience because you know being in a band, eh, I've always felt like I was holding maniacs at bay, <laughs> keeping them away from each other. I was the I was the mediator. So the Desert Rose Band, because that was your band. You that was yeah. it was your. I didn't job. have to worry about them. There was no baggage. That's Nothing. nice. Everybody got along. They were pros. What a great our, band our, too! Our, wow percentile on stage live is the 90th percentile because everybody was on their job there was it wasn't any issues you know right thank you so much for the extra time and thanks for uh, joining thanks, us thanks man today. we really appreciate it dane clark gets the uh, uh chris hillman award for all of the knowledge you have and your support all of you thank you so much but and i keep looking at your name dane and you know you, there was a, a really good actor i know yeah, my mom, my mom really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was a fan. <laughs> yes, he was. So. He was. Uh, yeah, he was out of that Warner Brothers. I don't know if he's on Warner's, but uh, that tough guy. Yeah. That the guy you called Dad, James? <laughs> no, <I>, no. <laughs> that's another <laughs> episode. <laughs> but that's a whole other episode. Awesome, uh, Chris. Thanks so much. Lovely to meet you, Andy. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. We thank appreciate you. you joining us. Have a good one. Take it easy. Take care. Great great to meet you, Chris. Great to meet you all. Be careful out there. Thank you. You too. Yes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.